Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the second season of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. In this episode, I speak with architect, author and academic Christian Perenio about his book Boredom, Architecture and Spatial Experience, published by Bloomsbury this year. We could describe capitalism as a cycle of production. You produce something, the new, the new is consumed, and then once it is consumed, it becomes outmoded, and therefore something in theory better is supposed to replace what has already been created. So there is this notion of circularity, of continuation, but also there is this sort of notion that every time that we produce something new, in theory, it is better than what already has been produced and consumed. As for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of AS for Architecture. I'm talking today to Christian Pareño. Pareño? You can correct me. Versions are correct. Uh, uh, who is uh, Assistant Professor of Architecture in Ecuador. Uh, Christian, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, Ambrose, and thank you for having me in A is for Architecture. As you said, I teach uh, History and Theory of Architecture at Universidad San Francisco de Quito in Ecuador. I consider myself more a theoretician rather than a historian in the sense that I am more interested in trying to come up with interpretations of the past rather than to reconstruct the past in itself. Of course, you know, history and theory go together. You cannot really separate one from the other. But I think that my interest in, in interpretation in trying to come up with some sort of explanation of what has happened derive, um, derives from my training as an architect. I trained as an architect. I worked as an architect here in Ecuador for four years before I moved to London to pursue uh, the MA in Histories and Theories at the Architectural Association. And the reason why I, I, I wanted to do the, the, the MA in history and theory was because I thought that that was going to make me a better designer. I thought that I was missing something and I thought that perhaps history and theory would have some sort of answer. But uh, that kind of thing actually totally uh, uh, shaped, changed my way of perceiving architecture. And then architecture became an object of study, an object of knowledge. So it was no longer just about design of coming up with new forms or with new solutions, but it turned into a way of understanding society, culture, economy, and so on. After the AMA in London, I continued to do some work um, as an architect in a big uh, architectural firm in London, uh, but, but no longer with the same interests as a designer, more as with this interest of trying to understand what was going on around me. 
And that was the context in which this idea of boredom started to, to infiltrate in my mind. And I decided to, to then continue with a PhD. And, and you did the PhD in London? I did my first year in London at UCL with Ian Borden. Mm -hmm. And then I transferred to Oslo um, with Mary Lending. So I began in London and then I finished in Oslo. That's fantastic. That's a, that's a big transfer. I mean, I, I don't know much about uh, Ecuador. I always thought I would end up living in Ecuador for some reason. I, uh, uh, a particular paper that I used a lot in my own PhD uh, was based on a, by, by a couple of authors called Green and Rojas um, on a particular program that was run maybe through your university. I don't recall now. I was trying to find my my um my hard drive to to find the paper again but it was about a program within an architecture school there where they had taken students and given them uh, a project working within the informal settlements in in Quito I think it was um working to help people um informally well more formally develop their own homes and I'd always found this a fascinating kind of a kind of fascinating condition because we don't in the UK obviously have informal settlements in the same kind of um, in anything like the same kind of manner that you do down there. So I, yeah, I've always found that 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 tension between high architecture and your book is very rich as a kind of a, um, this is the book by the way that we're we're talking about today, which is Boredom Architecture and Spatial Experience, published by Bloomsbury. Um, and it's a wonderful book, and we'll come on to that. But but this idea that the book is very rich and very deep in its theoretical understanding. It's very what you might describe, I suppose, as high end or high architecture. And yet your background is in a in a context in which there is this real kind of desperation and desperate need for architecture. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um, how architecture is taught within the within, within the Ecuadorian within your context, um, how it differs perhaps to to some of the more um how yeah where it differs from from what you found in in, in london and then in, in oslo as well um if at all if at all you know, it, it it does and it does uh, a lot um i think that in general terms i could say that uh, the education of architects here it is still very much informed by modernism so in a way, it's like here there is no postmodernism. You know, students are really trained to solve problems, therefore to understand architecture as a sort of problem. And um, with that comes also this idea that you know the, that there is a certain figure of genius who is able to solve society, all those sort of aspects, which in a way have been sort of superseded in Europe by postmodernism and the critique of modernism in itself. Um, so I think that perhaps that was one of the reasons why I felt that there was something missing here. And that is why I needed to go away, travel, and try to see different perspectives of it. Um, 
But at the same time, I think that the overall context, the history of Ecuador, the, the, the architecture of Ecuador, the culture, the way people react to space can be also defined as a zone of, 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 of in-between. So, you know, it's, it's not uh, local, it's not foreign, it's not something totally vernacular, it's not something totally sort of uh, generic and international. And within that, I think that architecture also is in this moment of, of in-between in which we are wondering again, what are our needs, but also what are, or, 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 or which ought to be our references, you know, what should we look at? And within that condition of in-betweenness of, of, of perhaps this zone of encounter, I think that boredom comes very, very handy because, because it is also, you can sort of uh, uh, say, you, you can argue that boredom is a condition of in-between. You are in one space, in one context, but you don't want to be there. You know, boredom can also be sort of described as, as, as wanting to be in another situation, in another architecture. So I think that this notion of, of being in between places, in between spaces, in between conditions, it is what is still sort of defining the way we understand architecture. Mm -hmm. So, um, we still here in Ecuador think that our architecture is just the designing of buildings, you know, objects, of edifices. But we seem to be slowly progressing into the understanding of architecture as space, as conditions, circumstances that all people live and inhabit. That's really very interesting, this idea of something I was talking about in another of the podcasts was this idea of modernism having being sort of answer driven, as you say, you know, where there, there's, it's a, it's a problem solving exercise. And yet we're in this kind of, as you, you know, rightly put it very late, almost late postmodern period where the subjective has um, emerged and taken hold really almost everywhere. Um, not least through technology. And yet we're still looking and we still do. I mean, even in the West, and you will have you will have encountered this, I'm sure, in London, there's still this reification of these great heroic figures who were um, uh, addressing social conditions through a very problem-solving kind of idea rather than a kind of um, experiential, uh, processual um, and conditions-based architecture. Which I think is very fascinating. So, so, so when you come to London, you 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 take on this kind of this theoretical thing. This is does the experience of being in London emphasize this or, or highlight this idea of boredom? Is this are you aware of the boredom of modernity, so to speak, when you're in Quito, or is it the experience of being in a place like London, which is hypermodern in a way? I think that uh, the, both places offer two different versions uh, of boredom. Mm -hmm. Boredom is there, but in different ways and in different sort of uh, levels of profundity. Um, 
We can say that perhaps the boredom of Quito is more related to the boredom of the modern period, late 19th century, beginning of 20th century. Yeah. Which boredom is sort of condemned. You know, boredom means that you are not being productive. Boredom sort of entails that you are not working uh, and therefore you are not gaining money. Mm-hmm. But perhaps the boredom of London it is more related to the postmodern boredom in which you are sort of surrounded by stimuli. You get bored because you have too many things to do, too many events to, to attend. Um, and also boredom begins to adopt this sort of notion of, of being a, a reactionary sort of condition, you know. Uh, uh, you don't want to be modern, you want to be postmodern, and therefore you adopt boredom at this radical sort of uh, uh, way of reacting to this abundance of situations. And in that way, we can think of, 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 of the boredom of the punk movement, you know, in the 1970s in London, in which people decided to, you know, just being destroyed, you know, uh, interfere with everyday activities, with everyday traffic, with everyday production, in order to maintain a kind of position. And within that, I think it's 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 important to sort of differentiate that the boredom in history also sort of suffers some sort of transformation. The boredom of the early modern period is more related to scarcity to a lack, mm-hmm. while the boredom of the postmodern is a sort of reaction to too much. Mm-hmm. Affluenza, I think, is one of the words that is now used to sort of... Yes, uh, uh, definitely. So if this surplus of, of, of information, the surplus of, of situations, conditions, forms, buildings, you know, mm-hmm simply become too much for the individual to make sense of it to derive some sort of meaning out of it so so in the book i mean uh, you track this journey through the development of boredom and you and, and you place boredom squarely as something that is characteristic of the modern paradigm from let's say you start in the 18, you start in the Regency period with the, li- the literature of Elizabeth Gore and, and slightly later um, with Charles Dickens's Bleak House. And, and you track this increasingly, um, increasingly sort of dynamic idea of what being bored is. The earlier, pe- the earlier periods had characterized boredom as a vice, as something that precipitated bad behavior you know we uh, the, the word i picked out in my notes to you was acadia but there's other or, or acadia or um but there are other interpretations of it but but the the way that you describe it the way that you track it is that it starts being seen as not simply a vice but as an instrument of a potential instrument of change that it and 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 i think you're you're, you're talking about punk movement is a very good example of that, where the, the superabundance, the emerging superabundance in post-war Britain, 20, 30, 40 years after the war, we start getting a desire to, to shake the tree again, to, 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 
to change. But I, I but I wanted to I wanted to go back to the beginning of the book and 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 you to sort of describe I suppose this this trajectory this movement towards the 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 emergence of spatial or urban boredom more specifically. So um, when I started to, to, to research boredom, I wanted in a way to go back to the origins of boredom, you know, you know when and where it started. Mm-hmm. And one thing that caught my attention quite, um, quite in a sort of striking way was that I discovered that the term boredom in English is a very young term. You know, it, it, it only appears as we know it now, more or less, by 1830. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and when I investigated the, the etymological roots of, of the term boredom, it also was interesting to realize that, first of all, there's no certain sort of a, a point in history that you can say, you know, it really derives from this or that sort of root. Mm-hmm. But uh, also boredom can be related to this idea of to bore, to create a void, to create a, 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 this sort of action that is repeated and therefore becomes sort of annoying and ends up into being nothing. And that sort of notion of nothingness, of emptiness, to me, it's, you know, it's totally um, architectural. Mm-hmm. And also it relates to the sort of very uh, early ideas of architecture as a space rather than architecture as a volume or as a mass. Also, what was very interesting to me is that uh, the earliest or perhaps one of the earliest printing, uh, printed records of the term boredom was done by a woman. Um, it was not Charles Dickens, and the, uh, as the Oxford English Dictionary says, but it was a woman, Catherine Gore, who yes. by 1830, she simply began to describe the experience of women as being boring. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you know, there is this notion of, of, of emptiness, of being in a space, of being just part of some sort of a scenography that at the end of the day, on the one hand, questions why? Why am I here? What am I doing here? Why am I occupying this space and this position? Um, and, and in a very sort of, sort of, at the same time, critical way. So she's describing, but she's also beginning to create some sort of questioning around this sort of kind of modern occupation. Mm -hmm. And I think that here it's very important to note that Catherine Gore is sort of describing a material condition, you know, Mm -hmm. being within an architecture, within material, within colors, within textures. Well, if we think of, 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 for, for example, ennui in French, you know, which is an older term. Ennui does not have the same terms of, or does not have the same connotations as boredom. Ennui is slightly more sort of uh, aspirational and it's more sort of related to the sublime and this idea of being in a sort of intangible dimensions. 
Well, boredom, you know, remains within the physical. Boredom remains with what we can touch and what we can feel. So it is also related to this sort of materialism and, and secular uh, attitude of modernity of the 19th century. I see. So, so boredom differs, to go back to what you said at the beginning, boredom is about this idea of longing. And the way that you describe Catherine Gore's literature, stories about Mayfair, about the lives of bored women in Mayfair, or bored people, but through the perspective of a woman, is this idea that their lives, which are enormously privileged and uh, uh, materially rich, in a way very culturally rich, uh, are looking in a way over the garden fence into lives that are more interesting than their own, experiences that are more interesting than their own, and they are longing for this. Is that, is that am I right in thinking that, that there's this, this idea of wanting something more? Because to, reading your book, to me, that made sense of this idea of the way that boredom then becomes an instrument it becomes effective on architecture in the urban realm in that we start producing environments which alleviate that intrinsic and ontological boredom characteristic of modernity. Is that, is that shinning up the right tree or is that some... I think that is one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But I think that another aspect that um, Gore is very sort of uh, pioneering is in presenting this sort of dichotomy between uh, an exterior, which is, as you describe, very culture, very, very rich, you know, we have to think of the Regency and the aesthetics of, of the Regency. Um, but despite living in this sort of very, uh, 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 we can say, entertaining um, circumstance, women began to wonder why? What's the purpose of all this? You know, you know, why I have to derive some sort of pleasure uh, if I'm not really acting within this environment? And, and here, you know, by presenting this sort of dichotomy of, of living in the exterior, but having a different sort of reaction in interiority, you know, the space of sentiments and thoughts, then she's also sort of advancing this, what I call the modern experience. And, 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 and if we move a little bit forward within the book, then uh, to me, it was also very sort of crucial to find the elaborations of Soren Kierkegaard about the modern experience. Because in a way, that is how he describes, he says, you know, in antiquity, we had to express all our feelings. We had these processes of catharsis, you know, even architecture is sort of it's part of a medium that expresses what we sort of feel and think in interiority. But Kierkegaard says with modernity, something changes. And there is sort of division between the space of exteriority and the space of interiority. And that capacity of living in these two parallel dimensions at the same time, you know, 
of being bored in interiority, but pretending to be sort of entertaining exteriority. It is a modern situation, mm. you know. So that describes how we live within this new era. That's really fascinating. I was very interested in this idea of the the the, the emergence of of this, yeah, this dichotomy, this interiority versus exteriority, the necessity of performing as interested participants participants in in a civilizational cultural language, uh, cultural discourse, but at the same time finding it extraordinarily um, stifling, stultifying, restricting. Uh, limiting in various ways, even for the most privileged. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that in a way, the people that you're citing, this literature that you're citing, are describing um, describing p- people that you wouldn't have thought were, in a way, had the right to be bored. Um, because they have so much compared with, with you know, uh, ordinary people, well, you know, the, the ordinary urban poor. Um, but I so so I yeah so I asked this question: Who are we to be so bored? Why have we retained this sense of boredom? How? First of all, how does this then manifest itself? How does this boredom start to shape our urban environments? So, um, is this recognised as a as a is this boredom recognised as something that needs to be solved? And urbanistically, how is that approached? Um, or is this something that we find when we look back? Is boredom something that we can track, but wasn't necessarily, although Catherine Gore puts a word to it, wasn't necessarily considered as a major part of what was happening? Not a major part, just a part of what was happening. Um, I think that perhaps we can trace back that uh, question with the consolidation of the sensibility of the eye, of individuality. Because when you think of boredom, you have to sort of go back to your own feelings. You have to identify yourself. You say, yes, I am bored. And then you begin to question why I am bored and what would I like to be doing instead of doing this, so on and so forth. So boredom sort uh, sort of strengthens that idea of the eye. And with the idea of the eye comes the idea of, of meaning. What is meaningful to me? And here I use the term meaning in, in, in two ways. First, meaning as simply trying to understand, make sense of what is happening around us. You know, let's think of a, of a, of a paragraph. You know, you read the paragraph and at, by the end, you want to have a meaning, you, you want to understand what the text is about, as simply as that. Um, that sort of meaning, uh, the eye in relation to the city, the eye in relation to how can I make sense of what is happening around me, but also meaning in the terms of existential meaning, you know, on what is my purpose within this context. And here, perhaps it's, it's and, and here, if, if we think of, in terms of architecture, is that we can sort of derive the sort of change in sensibility. Because, for example, as you mentioned in, 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 in 
the potential topics to talk about this morning um, was about this idea of the Gothic cathedral, you know, in which you have this big space in which you have this sort of technological, you know, sort of display um, versus a modern building. Let's think of, of the Crystal Palace. What would be the difference? And I think that the difference has to do with this notion of meaning because the Gothic cathedral was pointing out as your validation as human being, you know, it, 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 it showed you that you know, all their efforts in life were directed to this other worldly situation, space, and dimension. So that validated your life and your everyday efforts. Well, on the other hand, you know, with, with, with the secular approach of, of, of modernity, then that meaning sort of dissolves. And instead of, you know, actions being directed towards God or some sort of sense of the religious, you have to turn back to yourself. And that is the question of the sort of individual meaning, the return mm. to the I, or perhaps not return, perhaps the discovery of the I, mm. which the individual have, has to begin to consider the context in which life is sort of unfolding. I see. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, so the the, the project of secularization, or the the component part of moder modernity or modernization, which is secularizing, and I think it's yeah, it's Peter Berger who talks about secularization as as a as a as an inherent characteristic of of modernity. One of the five or six that he picks out. So, secularization is at the heart of this. Or maybe maybe it's desacralization. Maybe what pre-modern people have, and, and you use the idea of the Gothic cathedral, I think, very well, is that they have this exteriority. So their, 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 their personal journey and meaning is linked to something, as you say, that is beyond them. And, and this is manifest in a certain form of architecture, which is um, gratuitous and, and, and generous and, and beautiful and, and impressive in all of these things. The process of dis disenchantment with the universe, which modernity, as uh, you know, Hannah Arendt talks about, this process of disenchantment turns the human person back to themselves. It individuates the human person. It's interesting that... Um, it was, uh, I was reading an introduction to Dr. Zhivago by um, Boris Pasternak. And Pasternak suggests that the genius of Christianity, funnily enough, is individualization. And that it just, has ta it just takes a long time to, to, to realize itself. Is that the, the, the characteristic of pre-Christian cultures was one of nepotism, of tribalism. Um, and what the idea behind Christianity of individual salvation um, necessarily entails this individuation, this this turning into them to to the self, to the to the individuated self, rather than um, aspiring to a collective salvation through through um, collective cultural outputs, which I quite which I which I find quite interesting. But this idea of secularization. Is also kind of very closely linked to, to, to the emergence of industrial capitalism. And I was wondering whether 
there was some kind of link there as well, whether there was, you, you felt that there was, that the industrial city, which emerges in lockstep with the individual idea of the individual, um, the, the two things are feeding off each other in a way, and it's not one producing the other, but the, the two things co-creating each other, that the, the industrial city is itself quite boring. Um, and then the person is left on their own as well. Um, in short, I would say yes. Um, Good. Uh, Next question. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that, of course, you know, if boredom is a characteristic of modernity, then of course boredom needs or derives from capitalism, the economic system. And let's remember that we could describe capitalism as a cycle of production. Mm -hmm. You produce something, the new, the new is consumed, and then once it is consumed, it becomes outmoded, and therefore something in theory better is supposed to replace what has already been created. Mm -hmm. So there is this notion of circularity, of continuation, but also there is this sort of notion that every time that we produce something new, in theory, it is better than what already has been produced and consumed. So it is this sort of cycle in which the mythology of progress, of advancement, comes in and justifies you know, this constant cycle of repetition of the consuming of the, uh, of the new, which turns into the old and the old, you know, gives birth to something that is even newer. Mm. Um, so, of course, you know, capitalism is, 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 is a crucial part in this cycle of the boredom and the interest in, you know, one needs the other, you know, uh, it, it's, 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 sort of, it, it's sort of vicious circle that um, many philosophers wonder, you know, when is it going to end? Mm. Is it going to end? Or, 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 you know, or what other new system is it going to replace capitalism? Mm. And so far, I think that uh, uh, most philosophers would agree that we have not been intelligent enough or inventing, inventive enough to come up with a replacement to well, I, I wonder about this. Because, yeah, I wonder about this because I, I when I talk, when I, I lecture on uh, a particular lecture I give to the master's students is around the idea of transportation and, and sustainability. And I, I, I talk about I talk about the emergence of the motor car. And the motor car is either it either pr produces the desire to travel great distances or it is a response to a desire to travel great distances, i.e. the human animal, the human psyche, collective and individual, starts to desire to go great distances at speed. And so we make a machine that does it. And I wonder whether this is at the heart. So to come back to this idea of individuation, I wonder if this is at the heart both of this modern thing is that individuation is a dangerous animal because it has this constant ravenous desire for the next thing. I mean, I have, I have sons 
And uh, they go through this phase when they're about five, where they just want the next thing all the time. So you give them a thing and they want the next thing. And it's like, a, it's, it's very base and you have to kind of temper it and you have to kind of, um, you have to control it. But the next thing and the next thing, it's like you give them a sandwich and they ask for the crisp. You give them a crisp, they ask for the cola. You give them a cola, they ask for the ice cream. And it's like, you know, it can defeat you as, a, as an adult. I mean, the unbelievable, um, unbelievable kind of a battery of, of, of demands. But, 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 I, but I do wonder about this idea that we won't escape in a way this cycle of uh, consumption and boredom because we are individuated. And it is only through collectivization in one form or another, either through um, uh, medieval and, and, and pre-modern societies or in, in, in the case of uh, certain um, political movements, philosophical political movements of the 20th century, this attempt to, to, to supersede the individualist desire. To, to, to actually put a put a stop to this because it doesn't seem to want to stop as you say you know I've lived through the Walkman and then the the mini disc player and then this well there was the CD there was the personal CD player then the mini disc player came out and that was that lasted about three years and then and it just sort of disappeared lots of people spent a lot of money and then we got the MP3 player, and now it's just this endless cycle of phones and phones and phones and streaming and better streaming and more, you know. So I do wonder about that. I wonder whether this boredom is absolutely attached to the modern, the modern fetish for individuation. Um, going back to this notion of individuation, but also going back to your sons, um, <laughs> Donald Winnicott, you know, the very famous British psychoanalyst, he said that boredom, and more or less around the age that you described, or four or five years old, he said that, you know, the boredom in children is a sign of development, mm. is a sign of independence, mm -hmm. sign that they no longer need a, a parent, a guardian, and that they are beginning to explore the world uh, by their own means which of course goes back to the question of, of what do I like? You know, if, if I don't want crisps right now, what do I really want? Is it chocolate or is it soda? You know, um, so, um, so to Winnicott is a sort of sign of development, mm -hmm. of progress. But also moving a little bit within the book, um, if we go to Heidegger, Heidegger would say that the, that sort of boredom, the boredom of the eye of the individual is the boredom that we could call the most superficial because it is still sort of, it still lingers within this uh, uh, material realm, you know, the body, the context, the architecture. And in a very sort of almost um, controversial way, he says that there is a more profound boredom and it's a boredom so profound that we really do not uh, realize that we live in this boredom. He even describes boredom as, as the space, you know, like, like, like we would be sort of, uh, you know, submerged in water and, and, you know, when you're in water, you almost do not realize of the water itself. So we're in this sort of 
atmosphere, very thick, and therefore everything is related to this boredom and everything is sort of reaction against this boredom. Mm. And even more, you know, controversially, uh, Heidegger says that there is no way out, mm. you know? If we continue within the same system, if we continue with this sort of obsession with science, if we continue sort of uh, uh, not trying to understand our role within the environment, um, then we will be the same. And, 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 and in a very sort of polemic way, he says that the only way out of boredom is through terror, because terror would sort of uh, would be sort of strong enough to to make to make us wake up mm. from this boredom dream, and therefore we would be able to change our system, our beliefs, so on and so forth. And uh, he says that the only way to instill terror in our current world would be through a leader, someone, of course. He's in a way sort of, you know, many people have interpreted this as just paving the way for Hitler, um, that there would be a someone who would be able to make a sort of realize of this condition that we live in. And that is a very more profound level of boredom. And that requires not just the process of individuation, DI, but it sort of becomes a communal project in which, you know, we would all have to be guided towards this sort of new period with new values. Quite, there's quite some correspondence there, isn't there, with the, um, with the, uh, the, the current situation with this um, COVID-19 crisis and, and the, um, the way that it has actually, in a way, been quite exciting and has also precipitated on an individual scale, but also on a cultural scale, an idea that there needs to be, that something isn't right, that the, the, the process of homogenization uh, through globalization seems to be in some way um, productive of pathologies and it's given everybody a fright. Whatever their position on it, it's frightened everybody, uh, whether they're terrified of the virus or they're terrified of the re response to the virus political and, and social responses to the virus and it's it is being certainly on, on on a number of for a number of people they've used it to to develop initiatives social communal um cultural that try and address this um which i think is a fascinating idea that hitler wasn't as effective perhaps as as, uh, as all that although although you can look at the second half of the 20th century certainly in europe as a direct response to those things and, and and a lot of the again political and cultural uh, forms that take place after that are definitively orientated towards resisting the re-emergence of that particular virus the virus of national socialism of, of fascism but but so so is heidegger saying is heidegger saying that the actual condition the spatial social condition itself, it's not just an individual thing, but it is itself definitively boring. Like modernity is definitively boring. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. He's very convinced of that. 
Um, but also, he says that we live in this boredom that most of us do not realize of this situation. Again, you know, this analogy of being, you know, submerged in water. Uh, but he also says, you know, if, if, if you slowly begin to realize of this boring situation, you might encounter the moment of enlightenment. And the moment of enlightenment simply means that reaching this sort of level of total neutrality. And that total neutrality would allow us to evaluate our circumstances with slightly more information and therefore take a better uh, 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 route towards the future. And, and, and he describes this, this sort of moment of enlightenment um, with a very sort of architectural image. You know, he says, you know, when you're walking in a big city on a Sunday, when everything is shut, you know, uh, modernity is not really working, you know, you're just wandering around this space, then the moment of enlightenment is very similar to that moment in which you simply see things for what they are rather than for the sort of extra value of this sort of mythology of progress. And that moment of enlightenment, of course, you know, in theory, according to Heidegger, will, would be able to, to sort of lead us to whatever is next, the next period in history. Hmm. Again, I don't know about what it was like in Quito, but it was quite interesting in Britain during this, particularly during the lockdowns. And it's something that I've been thinking about contesting the logic of the way that urban form is being, has been formed. So we've had this kind of imperative, this idea of an imperative, of, of an urban imperative, which is to make these big glass towers in city centers go higher and higher and higher. And that's because that's how we make money. And that's the best way of making money. And um, we gather people together in high density and stick them in towers. Um, and then everybody started working from home. The cities became like ghost towns. And people started working from home. And although there was certainly a slowdown in economic activity, it didn't cease. And all of a sudden, the actual logic of the capitalist city, the logic of the city of London, of Canary Wharf, of all of these great tower blocks, was kind of seriously challenged. The boring city was abandoned. And people wanted to go back into their domestic spaces. And it's been very difficult. I don't know, again, about what it's like in Ecuador, but certainly it's been very difficult to persuade people to come back to the office because it's boring. <laughs> but uh, I was in London, you know, a couple of weeks ago, three, three weeks ago, and, um, and I went to Canary Wharf. I went to the city of London, you know, wondering about all the situations. But uh, first of all, I, I was told that, that now Thursdays are the new Fridays. Because, you know, Fridays people go to wherever they live and the city therefore becomes animated again on Thursdays. And it was totally true. I went to the city, I went to Canary Wharf on Thursday and it was like the past. As if the virus uh, had not happened, but it was a different day. It was a different routine, you know, it, there's a slight change. Mm. Um, but then, of course, the question arises, you know, is that slight little change going to amount to something 
bigger mm. or it's just a small variation in 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 the same routine yes but this, this takes me on to the the next point that i that i picked from your book which is charles jenks's point about bigness and and rem coolhouse's point about bigness and that jenks argues as i read what you wrote that scale that the scale of modern architecture the scale of the modern city perhaps diminishes its capacity uh, to not be boring. Whereas, and, and this comes back to uh, another point, uh, another point that you, you, you made in, um, that, you, that, you, that you pick out from Henri Lefebvre, which is this idea that boredom, um, at the end of uh, uh, page 14, you say boredom, Quotum is saying, as pregnant with desires, frustrated frenzies, unrealized possibilities, which is, which is very much what Rem then repeats. Um, I, and I wondered whether you could talk a little bit about this idea of the, the, the scale of the modern city. So technology then, which facilitates building at giant scale, hmm. then becomes the instrument potentially of boredom or in Coolhouse's idea, potentially of opportunity. And uh, I go on to say it again, pregnant with desires. Yes, that is a fantastic phrase, I think. Um, I think that what joins uh, Jenks and Coolhouse is that in a way, they're both wondering about the aesthetics of boredom, how boredom yeah. looks. Um, and of course, Jenks is reacting against uh, big skyscrapers, this idea of the curtain wall, this sort of very modern uh, uh, position about, you know, architecture being almost neutral, so life can, you know, develop around it. Um, and Kulhas says, on the other hand, we need this sort of aesthetical boredom, this sort of blankness uh, in order to, to sort of compensate for these postmodern uh, experimentations in form. Um, but I think that, that, that both, both authors, both thinkers sort of miss one very important point that I've tried to sort of uh, uh, stress throughout the book. And that is that boredom is relational. You know, it is a relation. Therefore, it's not a stable. So what is boring for me, I'm sure it might not be boring for you. So, you know, uh, you know big, tall skyscrapers with glass curtains in orthogonal shapes might have been boring for Jenks, but I'm sure that for some other people might be very interesting. And perhaps that is why they keep appearing around cities. And Kuhas, you know, says that, you know, that we need boredom, so on and so forth. But when you see Kuhas projects, you know, they always stand out, you know, you know, you cannot walk through a city and, and, and not pay attention to an OMA building because in a way, because of the design, because of the qualities, the spaces, they always call for attention. So, um, so, so then, then boredom begins to sort of uh, appears as something different, something that 
from the formal point of view, cannot be stabilized because it changes, but in a way sort of it goes back to this question of our relationship with the built environment. You know, mm -hmm. how do we relate? How that built environment sort of contributes to a sense of meaning uh, and to a sense of individuation within the modern world. Mm. I think it's really interesting. And it's really interesting that the, the way that you, you describe OMA Coolhouse's work, that it does always jump out that he isn't satisfied with the, the pervasive, uniform, uni universalizing modernism. That isn't enough for him. And in a way, that sort of makes him a postmodernist, doesn't it? It sort of makes him, and, and as you say, Coolhouse and him are two sides of the same coin. One says we've got to do kind of culturally contextual architecture, which has which has little ticks and bells and whistles that make it somehow meaningful, like Frampton does. And then Coolhouse is sort of playing around with pop iconography and all sorts of bits and pieces, really. But, but it, it's 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 still very ad hoc in that in that way that postmodern is. But I but I do wonder about this idea of them. They're, they're both talking about this idea of stuff being not very interesting. And they're talking about it from the perspective of an outsider. They're not talking about it from the perspective of someone who has to live in it. So to come back to the individual, the experience of modernity as boring is an experience of is is a is a is a a point about experience of it. If you have to live on the fourteenth floor of a peripheral concrete tower block that is a kind of a bog standard nineteen sixties tower block, then you're the intellectual game of finding it interesting isn't really that meaningful. It's just boring to be in. You can't get out to the gardens, the bins are blocked, the concrete staircases are cold at night, the windows get ice on the inside, um, the rooms are 2.45 meters high, the windows are all the same. You know, it is actually experientially boring, but intellectually it might be quite interesting. So I do wonder about that, whether this argument, this discussion about these things um, um, go on. Um, I think that uh, that sort of uh, denunciation of this kind of architecture with those sort of qualities um, has also been related to uh, political approaches within architecture. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the book, I discuss um, Kirk Russell. Kirk Russell was a, a, a very sort of conservative American thinker. And, and he denounced you know, that kind of architecture, the architecture that you just described in Britain and in the United States as part of a, of a sort of political conspiracy. You know, this conspiracy to sort of subject people to these sort of situations so they would not have the opportunity to think, to individuate, to create. And he says, you know, on the one hand, this kind of architecture also derives in social problems, you know, very specific, you know, alcoholism, 
crime, destructive behavior. Um, but at the same time, he says, well, but society is, 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 is not the same. He says, you know, and society should not be the same. You know, we do not have the same interests. And therefore here he goes a little bit against equality. And he begins to sort of wonder about how could we create a very sort of uh, diverse architecture that on the one hand would be able to respond to the sort of diversity of people, mm -hmm. but taking into account that we do not want everyone to be equal or to be the same, because in his view, in his conservative mind, we are different with different capacities and therefore with different sort of roles and positions within society. So perhaps going back to the core of Russell Kirk is this idea of, of boring architecture as a political tool mm. to create boredom just to create a certain kind of society. Yeah, a sort of Fordist society, a mechanized society. I mean, I'm not. I'm the, the, the denunciation is not my own. I, I have um, no experience of living in 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 uh, in a way. I have no experience of living in late modern cities. Although obviously, I lived in Glasgow, which was archetypical modern city before I came down here, um, and now I'm living in a in a gentrifying seaside town, which seems very modern in a in a peculiar kind of way in in its hybridity, and it ain't boring. I can tell you that. Um, a little bit more boredom might be quite good. Actually, I might get more work done. Um, but, but, the, but this, I, I suppose, the book, the book itself is incredibly rich, and it's, it's got this lovely tone to it, where we, you're gathering in this huge variety of sources, sticking it all together to create this kind of. It's almost like a. I, I, I don't know. It's like a diagram of ideas that you pull together to, to, to consolidate your thesis around the idea of boredom. Where does, uh, and, and, and I did want to talk about that, that methodological approach to, to history and theory that you have taken here, which is very ahistorical. ahistorical. I mean, you track a, a, a chronology, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like a chronological history. It does feel like a, a, a almost like you're playing in ideas. It's uh, very elegant in that respect. But I do wonder whether, you know, if, if we've kind of, if you've ascertained this idea of boredom as an inherent characteristic and a problematic one, but with built-in solutions to it, where does, where do we go? How, how are we trying now to deal with this idea? How does the modern, the contemporary city address this idea of, of boredom? What does it look like? Is this what the Guggenheim effect is trying to do? It's trying to create points of interest amongst the amorphous boringness. Or the Turner Contemporary here in Margate, or, um, or, or do we try and create cities that are exciting and then let the rest of space? So we've got New York and we've got Los Angeles, and in between that, who gives a who gives a damn? It's as boring as hell. Um, and as long as there's those two exciting points, then people are going to be content in the boring bit in the middle. Um, I think that one thing that I would like to uh, also stress is the uh, ambiguity and ambivalence of boredom. Um, currently, in, 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 in the field of boredom studies, you mainly find uh, you know, people, psychologists, philosophers, saying that boredom is either good or bad. Yeah. 
But I think that it's both. And it's both at the same time. So uh, boredom can be destructive, but boredom can also be extremely creative. Yeah. Uh, boredom can derive from too little, but boredom can derive from too much. And sometimes, you know, at the same time. Um, but the question of, of, of what is next, it, it, I don't think that it can be sort of uh, 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 response yet, because we're still, historically speaking, uh, within the forces of the modern period. We are still working with the same social system. We're still working with the same economic system. So as long as we are within this system, we will continue to be bored and boring. And because, as we sort of said earlier, we cannot still sort of think of an alternative, then we still cannot think the sort of emotional dimension that we will be living in the future. Mm -hmm. And here, perhaps, I, I, I go back to a little bit of postmodern theory about history and, and, and Francis Fukuyama, who says, who affirms that we're, we're at the end of history, we're at the end. Mm -hmm. And this end is perhaps characterized by boredom, you know, because we're also at the end, you know, we have been repeating the same principles for the last almost 300 years. And, and therefore, by now, we must be tired, we must be exhausted, we must be bored. But we still are not very, very close to that end yet, so that we can see, you know, what is on the other shore. Mm. Um, so I think that we're very much in mass within this sort of system of trying to navigate scarce information with too much stimulation. And I think that our social system, our social uh, 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 network uh, through the internet sort of proves that, you know, it's a constant uh, 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 bombardment of information, of images, but at the same time, posing the question, all of this, what can amount to? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. You know, we are still wrapped up in that. I mean, maybe, maybe some of the arguments certainly around the, the, the current conflict in Eastern Europe and the Ukraine and Russia are suggestions that Francis Fukuyama spoke a little bit too soon. That what he's, as I've always understood it, what he's really talking about is the absolute success of the American economic model, producing a kind of universalized and homogenized experience of reality, which is based around sort of um, caring capitalism. And actually what's about to happen with the rise of China and its best friend, Russia, is that we've got a multipolarity re-emerging, which might constitute a break from modernity. It might actually be the moment at which modernity starts to disintegrate 
in 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 the sense that it was always a a movement towards universalization and we're about to get multipolarity which is not universal um which is kind of a fa fascinating possibility i mean slightly alarming but only because i'm on the only because i'm on this side of it yes it is very alarming but also on but also fukuyama says that this end of history will be characterized by these kind of conflicts. You know, uh, 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 we will have more conflicts because we cannot see which way uh, we ought to continue. There is no sort of unifying narrative or a new, or a new mythology mm. that would be able, you know, to sort of redirect efforts or redirect sort of uh, resources for this sort of coming future. Mm. So we, as you mentioned, you know, we have these sort of polarities trying to compete with each other, but that is perhaps another symptom of this boredom. You know, we don't find many in one position, we don't find many in the other, and therefore we're still struggling to find a new mm -hmm. sort of I don't know if universal, but at least some sort of some sort of uh, 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 convention or sort of agreement about how society ought to follow. And as you rightly mentioned, it's it's a society with very specific global characteristics. You know, mm. in different ways, in different levels, in different uh, uh, um, um, with different facts, but this sort of new condition will definitely define, you know, this very, very end of history. And therefore, the way that, that this modern history will end, I think that will define, you know, the beginning of whatever is, is to come. And we won't be bored anymore. And so our cities won't be boring. Because obviously the two co-construct each other. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> I guess it makes sense. <laughs> it is a logic. It, it's it's a, uh, um, but of course, you know, it's 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 the question of trying to imagine something that we cannot imagine. Yeah. Uh, and within that sort of realm, I think architecture becomes totally instrumental because if we see in history, architecture has helped, has contributed to the consolidation of ideas, to the creation of ideas, to the proposal of new ideas. So architecture will have a huge role into the sort of very end of history and the creation of a new period. Wonderful. Do you want to talk a little bit about this, this way that you've written this book? How, how you, how you use these various sources, these uncommon sources, like Catherine Gore, to unpack uh, ideas around space. Because I think that's, I think certainly from where I am sat and the people I have to teach, there is a kind of always an emphasis on sticking to canonical texts, sticking to architectural thinking, making sure you're always got a foundation of the, the big wig, you know, the big hitters, the big, the, the grand masters and, and grand mistresses of the of the discipline 
But you don't do this at all. Yours is a much more literary-based kind of exercise. Um, when I started to research about boredom, I, I, I was very sure of the theme. I knew that I wanted to research boredom, but I didn't know how. Mm-hmm. So I started to read uh, different uh, references from psychology, sociology, philosophy, literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found psychology and per- perhaps some, some, some texts um, uh, that deal with, with sociological boredom too dry because they wanted to quantify boredom. And they wanted to put a form. They wanted to put a very sort of specific images mm. in the mind of what boredom might be. And when I tried to sort of elaborate around those texts from an architectural point of view, it led me nowhere. Mm. Because suddenly boredom became very sort of um, very um, static. And my point of view after reading philosophy was that boredom is anything but, but static. It changes, you know, if, if it depends on each individual, then we have, you know, as many boredoms as human beings exist in the world. Um, and that is why suddenly philosophy and literature became way much more fertile in how to think about boredom in spatial terms and also in how we can uh, uh, sort of uh, project in relations of space rather than in images, rather than in representations of what boredom might be. Mm. So that is the reason why uh, suddenly everything began to revolve about boredom and also the sort of finding of, of, of these very sort of literary and textual relationship between boredom and space became a very sort of, of, of uh, an interesting uh, uh, way of writing the book. Mm. And also, uh, I noticed that, you know, you know, boredom in architecture begins to pick up slowly, slowly, not as perhaps other disciplines as art or li- literature. And it begins to, particularly uh, after, the, after the second half of the 20th century, begins to appear more and more in uh, narratives, discourses around architecture. Mm. To the point that, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of the most sort of, of, of common uh, terms in, in, in schools of architecture and critiques of architecture is, you know, this decision, if you have to say, oh, is this project boring or is this project interesting? And you usually begin saying, oh, you know, I find it's interesting. But this interesting, as I have tried to demonstrate, you know, needs the boring because, you know, when you're saying this is interesting, you're also saying this is not boring. Mm -hmm. So this sort of dichotomy begins by now or, or it has defined by now our everyday architectural culture Mm. in which we almost evaluate everything that we see, every project around this idea of how innovative Mm. it is, not just in terms of form or in terms of aesthetics, but in terms of providing solutions or new responses. In a way, the architecture has become 
quite like sort of Snapchat or Instagram. Like it's about what uh, the architecture practice in London Muff call premature gratification. We've got to constantly produce environments that are stimulating in a new way, um, lest people become bored and they move away. Which um, in, and and yes. cities them and cities themselves now have to do this. But you finish on this very important point, and it's a Lefevrian point, I think, which is that um, it's the very the very last two sentences of your book. The book has extraordinarily rich endnotes, by the way. Um, I'm going to find it here, uh, where you say, sorry, I will find it. The, this extended modernity, superficiality and profoundly bored outlined by boredom escapes the peril of a total architectural homogenization driven by a common intellectuality, since it depends on individual experience and the cultural sensibility of creators and users. Even if architectural configurations may become nearly identical with or perfectly different from each other, the way in which they are encountered will vary, prompting relationships and actions in interiority and exteriority, morally and ethically, that form functional and malleable spaces of inhabitation, appropriation, affirmation and revolt. It's a lovely sentence. There's a lovely set of sentences. So there's this idea that even though modernity, we will not, we are not going to transcend it at any point soon. It would seem we had there this Lefevrian point of you know how we get to the sensory sensual um, is the way that we can transcend this boredom. Um, I think what I was trying to point out, without realizing then, but perhaps now now it has become slightly clearer, is this notion of of experience mm -hmm. and how experience can sort of uh, take a different tone and, and, and how experience can become a source of, of knowledge and a source of reflection that can surpass just the individual, that in a way can surpass just the will or the need to self-expression and can sort of become uh, a new body of knowledge that perhaps can lead into some sort of way of, 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 of proposing some sort of future. Um, also, this idea of experience, it is something that I have encountered uh, quite a lot in the last couple of years because of the pandemic, you know, in all these sort of uh, conferences and, and people talking and speaking, they, they all go back to this notion of experience, you know, my experience during the pandemic, what have I done? How have I reacted? Um, but I think the, the challenge now is how to take that body of experience, as we usually sort of tend to understand it, and try to sort of process it in a different way. And here, I think that what is interesting about experience from a sort of a epistemological point of view is that experience perhaps tries to do what Heidegger was trying to suggest, which is trying to incorporate the researcher, trying to incorporate the philosopher within the process of questioning, within the process of researching. 
to come up with solutions that are slightly more hybrid, that they are not either objective or subjective, but in a way try to combine both. And that both, and that sort of mixture, that sort of stickiness, that amalgamation might suggest something totally new and different. So that is why actually I am trying to, at the moment, to, to, to think of a new project and a new project of research that on the one hand revolves around this notion of experience, but not as a description, but more from an epistemological point of view, but also what I would call at the moment, you know, it's the experience of sameness, you know, the, the, the exposure to repetition, um, to the same sort of circumstances. And how that circumstance, that uh, sort of historical condition, perhaps can begin to turn onto itself to begin to suggest something else. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Christian. It was lovely to listen to you talk and to um, get to ask you questions. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ambrose. That was that was very uh, 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 interesting. That was very intense. <laughs> uh, I, I have not had the opportunity to discuss these ideas in quite some time, so, so I'm very thankful. Phew, that was intense. Thanks to Christian for his wonderful book and for engaging so thoroughly with the recording. Thanks also to Bloomsbury for the book. Please see the podcast description for links to it. You should buy it, OBS, and to Christian's professional and social links. And to another recording Christian made as part of his work with the research network, the International Society of Boredom Studies, entitled Boredom, Suicide and the Architecture of One Poultry Street, London, from June 2021. And of course, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow and share. A is for architecture. All over the shop. Cheers.